Genesis chapter 2, starting at verse 4. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord had not yet caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord formed the man of, of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of the garden to water the garden, or the, a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold, and the gold of that land is good. Bedellium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It is one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You shall surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Father, thank you for uh, your word. Without it, we would be lost. Without it, we wouldn't know how to find our place in this world. Without it, we wouldn't know why we were here, what we were supposed to do, why this world was made, our place in it. In grace and mercy, you not only created the world and us in it, but you told us why and how. As we continue to consider these um, first days of creation, uh, may they be helpful to us, Father. May we see that your intention for us is good and was good all along. Help us to find our satisfaction and our thriving in you. Father, for those in our congregation right now that are suffering, and many are, some whose health is declining, some who are still in the midst of grief, others who are in the midst of joy and excitement and happiness because of blessings that you have poured out on them and they have realized and accepted everything in between. Father, thank you. Sustain us, strengthen us, keep us, I ask in Christ's name, amen. As we made our way through Genesis chapter one uh, to chapter two, verse three, we realize that what is happening is God is bringing the earth into sharp focus. There is so much detail he could have given us, but he keeps zeroing in from the universe and the heavens down to the earth in which you and I live. And the focus is getting narrower and narrower as he zeroes in on the centerpiece of his creation, male and female, humankind. What we realize as we consider this is we're not just an accident. We haven't just happened. We are here intentionally because of the purpose of God. We were created to inhabit the world that God expressly created in order for us to live in and find a habitat and a home. 
All the rest of creation is a stage. It is a, 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 a platform through which God displays his glory, his wonder, and sets humankind in the midst of that stage. I wrestle with this uh, a little bit as I think on these things in ways that I have never thought of them before. We take for granted, I think, the story in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, actually a lot of the first part of Genesis. We know nothing else if you've been raised in the church. And it wasn't so with uh, humankind for the first 2,800 years. I made an error last week in saying it was about 1,500. But for the first 2,800 years, there was no reference, uh, there was no word of God contained in Scripture that was given to humankind to tell them about the origins of the world and their place in the world. It just reminded me what a gift the word of God is to us. What a treasure it is for us to have the revelation of God, the mercy of God to have his very words that he spoke that we might know about this world in which we live and we might know about the world that is to come. Without this book, we would be lost. Without this book, we would have no account of these first days of creation and therefore resonates with us Hebrews chapter 11, verse 3. So it is that we understand that the words were formed by the word of God through faith. We believe this account that God has given us. As we come to chapter 2 and starting in verse 4, there's a shift in focus, a shift in emphasis, and a shift in perspective. It begins in verse 4. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. This is the perspective of chapter 1. It's a vision from above. It's a reminder of the transcendent God that made the universe and everything that's in it. But at the end of verse 4, it flips that around and it says, In the day when, or in the day that the Lord made, or in the day when the Lord made the earth and the heavens. We're beginning to see a shift now, an even greater focus as this revelation of God zeroes in more and more to man on earth. And what we have starting in verse 2 of chapter 4 is a vision from below, looking up, so to speak, a vision of the imminent God. We have descriptions of God which are just astounding here. He's described as a potter, one who forms man from the dust of the ground. He's described as a respiratory um, uh, technician or a respiratory technician as he breathes into the, the mouth of the one that he has created and gives him the breath of life. We see God as a gardener who plants this garden through which man might live. And we see God as an anesthesiologist as he puts Adam to sleep and takes a rib out of his side. And then as a great plastic surgeon, as he closes up the womb and, and uh, Adam is good to go when he wakes up again. It's an incredible picture of God this shift to the focus of the beginning of man's story. Now, we've looked at the creation of the universe in chapter 1 up to chapter 2, verse 3, and now we read this, this phrase that these are the generations of. Now we're beginning to look specifically at the beginning of man's story, the history of man on this earth. And in fact, that story now will continue to unfold until the end of Revelation chapter 19, um, uh, and actually to the end of this age, this great unfolding of how man is on this earth and God's way with man on the earth. There's another significant shift that has taken place, uh, and you might have noticed it in your Bible. When we're in chapter 1, the word God is used 35 times. The name for God there is Elohim. It's a name of uh, uh, almost the transcendent God, the God who is separate from his creation, 
the God who is glorious in majesty and his power. And it is a stunning picture of the might and the majesty of this God who could speak and this universe and this world comes into existence. But when you come to verse four of chapter two now, there's a new name. And the new name is, is, is Yahweh Elohim or the Lord God. And it's this amazingly intimate, personal name of God. That name now that's used starting in verse four of chapter two is the name that will be used primarily through the rest of chapter three. And it's only used in the whole Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, here in these few chapters and one other place in Exodus. And it's fascinating when you read this account, when you come to Genesis chapter three, verses one to five, it reverts back to the name of God. And what is going on there is, is the, the devil and Eve is no longer looking at God as a personal God, as a God that has relationship and talks in God as a distant God. It's a fascinating shift that takes place. But what's happening primarily in chapter uh, uh, 2, verse 4, is that Yahweh is the covenant name of God. It's the personal name of God. It draws attention to the personal relationship that God has with his people. It's this God who redeems. It's this God who comes close. It's this God who is imminent with us. It's this God who is among us. And so this shift now goes from this transcendent, powerful, majestic God to the God of covenant who is in a personal relationship with us. And it's a wonderful um, combination of those two names, which I think would have sustained the people and it ought to sustain us. When we think about God and we pray to God, yes, he is the God who made the heavens and the earth. He is the powerful God. He is the God who can answer our prayer. Oh, Lord God, there is nothing too difficult for you. But he's also the God with whom we walk and the God with whom we talk and the God who cares for us and the God who loves us and the God who provides for us. This account in Genesis chapter 2, verse 4, is an account that zeroes in even more precisely on those first, that last part of day six when God created the earth, and it zeroes in on Eden, and it zeroes in on man's place in the garden. It's like using Google Earth with the Bible. Some of you have used Google Earth, and you go to Google Earth, and it starts out with this orb, and then you press in your sort of coordinates, and slowly it zeroes in more and more and more until it finds out the exact location that you put in or the coordinates that you put in. It's fascinating just to watch it. You can be mesmerized by the process of the world spins and you kind of land it. Well, this is what's happening here in the Bible. It's like God's Google Earth is now zooming in on Eden and on Adam's place in the garden. And it's important that as you think through these verses, that you begin to read, starting at verse 4 of chapter 2, and, and read it in context of chapter, or chapter 2, chapter 3, and chapter 4. That's the context of these verses, not going back to Genesis chapter 1. What we have here is a picture of what life was like in the garden before sin, and that is then juxtaposed with life in the garden after sin. And those two visions or pictures are now part of Genesis 2 verse 4 to the end of chapter 4. I encourage you to work through that and think through that and look at the contrast that God has given to Moses to draw the implications of what life was intended to be like 
and then what life became like because of sin. I want to maybe draw attention to three sort of points as we work through this. And they're points that emphasize the fact that we only thrive in relationship and dependence with God. We try and seek our own independence. We try and get out from under God's provision, out from God's authority, and we will make a mess of our lives. Genesis chapter 2 reminds us that we are made, we are formed, we are built to thrive in dependence upon God. That's the first point of, uh, I think, Genesis 2, 4 to 7, or at least the way that I have worked them through in my head. We have been created to thrive in dependence on God for life. The particular focus of these verses is the some part in the end of the sixth day of creation where we realize that a man and woman were made. And Moses gives us a picture of the earth untended. He talks about things that, uh, in verses 5 or 6, about the, how the earth is described. No bush of the field was yet in the land. No small plant of the field had yet sprung up. Uh, subterranean water sources were rising up from the ground, and they were watering the earth. And we say, well, why? Why was the earth like this? Well, in part, because man had not yet been created. He says that man had not yet been formed, created, put into the garden to till it and to manage it. And he had not yet caused it to rain, which is a fascinating statement in and of itself that God is the one who sends rain. God is the one who withholds rain. God is the one that makes sure that we have um, life on this earth or God is the one that sends a famine on this earth. It's a fascinating phrase just to wrestle around in your brain. But don't miss the central place of man. That the garden was not complete or the garden was prepared and it wasn't ready to function fully until God had formed man and placed him in the garden. This is again a, a reminder to you and I that we're just not an afterthought. We're just not an accident. We're just not a byproduct of creation. We are the focus of God's creation. God has created this world so that we might inhabit it and till it and work it as a reminder and a gift of his provision to us. What I would encourage you to do is take verses uh, 5 and 6 of Genesis chapter 2 and read them in light of Genesis chapter 3, verse 18 to the end of the chapter, or at least uh, to the end of, of verse uh, 19, because the, the, the scrub and the brushes and the seed plants that are mentioned in 5, 6 are what is affected by the curse when you come to chapter 3 after man has fallen. And what was originally work of enjoyment and work that God has created for us in Eden in chapter 2 now becomes work by the sweat of our brow with thorns and thistles. Earth before sin, earth after sin. You come to verse 7, and it's an astounding description of what God has done. Very different and from uh, chapter 1, verse 27. In chapter 1, verse 27, we have this beautiful poetic description uh, where it says there, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created and male and female, he created them. Now you come to verse 7 of chapter 2, 
and you see what was going on or, or the expansion of that or the explosion of that or the fuller description now of what was said in poetic form. First of all, it says God formed man. By careful design and by divine intentionality, man is no afterthought, but rather we are the intentional product of the infinite mind that designed the atom and the cosmos, that this infinite intention was focused on the creation of man. It's worth thinking that through. We don't come from another animal life. We don't come from tree life. We were formed from the dust of the ground. That's the second thing that we realize that formed from the dust of the earth. That is fascinating to work that through. We're not some indestructible cosmic steel, um, some, some, some indestructible human creation of God. We actually go back to the very dust of the earth. It talks about our vulnerability. It talks about the need for humility to not think more of ourselves, to not think greater of ourselves, but to realize that God formed us from the dust of the ground and we will return to the dust of the ground. Psalm 103, verse 14. There's so many verses that reference us being made to the dust of the ground. Psalm 133, verse 14, talks about then God's awareness of us. He says, for he knows our frame and he remembers that we are but dust. God doesn't forget who we are. We often forget who we are, but God doesn't forget who we are. Then it says, God breathed into the man that he had formed. There's incredible intimacy that is expressed in that particular phrase. One commentator said, breathed is warmly personal with the face-to-face -face intimacy of a kiss and the significance that this was an act of giving as well as making and self-giving at that. God grabbed Adam by the face and gave him life. It's amazing, is it not? We are animated by the breath of God. And then it says, that unlike animals who also have the breath of life, though man became a life-giving soul. This incredible explosion for us of Genesis chapter 127 in this one verse of God zeroing in on Adam and making him and giving him life and giving him a soul. It can't be any more clear than that, can it, loved ones? Man owes his existence to God. God is the one who made us. God is the one who formed us. He still does that as Psalm 139 reminds us. God gives us a habitation in which to live. God tells us to cultivate the ground. We are dependent upon God for every breath that we take. Have you ever stopped to think about just how dependent on things outside of yourselves God has made you to be? 
It should stop or arrest any arrogance that we have, any self-confidence that we have, any thought that we have that, that I can do it on my own. You know, I often think of little kids as they're starting to learn about life, their tooth, I can do it. No, you can't. I can do it. And they want independence from their parents. They, they want to have control over their life and their universe. We never lose that fight. And yet here we're reminded that we are, are very dependence. The very breath that we breathe, I think of this often from Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 32, when God or Daniel speaks to Belshazzar and he says, you have defied the very God who holds your breath in his hand. Or as Paul says in the book of Acts, chapter 17, in him we live and move and have our being. It's this wonderful awe of what God has created, but it's this sobering sense of dependence that we have on the God who created us. Loved ones, we were made, you were made to live in dependence on God. Don't believe the lie that says you are the master of your own destiny. You will only thrive when you realize your dependence upon God. The second thing that I think there's a focus there, and there's so much we could say about so many phrases here, but we have been created to enjoy a relationship with God in the garden that God has made. It's fascinating. The Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east. And there he put man whom he had formed. There's that emphasis again. Uh, our dependence. God had planted a garden. He had prepared a habitation for us. And then he took the man that he had formed and he plunked him. Well, he probably gently put him because he was made out of dust. Put him in the garden. It's wonderful provision of God, is it not, that Here's this divinely prepared habitation for man. I've been thinking about so many things as I continue to work my way through this. And one of the things that I thought about, and Adam wasn't by himself for long, but he was by himself for long enough probably to realize that he was the only living human being on planet Earth. I can't imagine what that would have been like. And I don't know when God told him that uh, and blessed him and said, you know, uh, subdue the earth and rule over it. And as Adam is standing there, he's just been formed by God and he's looking as far as the eye can see and he's thinking, I can't do this. And of course, God made a manageable place in which Adam could subdue and rule over the earth. I often think of Acts 17. It's another one of these um, chapters in the Bible that I, I just have a hard time getting out of my thinking but in Acts chapter 17, one of the things that it describes is that God has determined the exact place and boundaries of our lives. And just as God had determined the exact place and boundary of Adam's life, which was in Eden at that time, I am thankful and I'm encouraged and I'm helped and I'm comforted by knowing that God has created me and he has placed me in Parksville at this time on this day with you people. He has given me a purpose. He has given me a place. He has given me boundaries so that I might thrive. We're not here by accident. You're not here by some 
chance of fluke or some fluke of chance or anything else. You are here by God's design and purpose. What a comfort and a help that is. Talks about a garden in Eden. We don't know where Eden was. Was it a city? Um, uh, Certainly it's a geographical place somewhere. And he says he planted a garden in Eden. And it was in the east. Why this reference to east? Well, I think probably because for the people of Israel, everything was in reference to the land that they lived in, the land of Israel. And so Mesopotamia, which is likely where the garden was, was east of there. And certainly it was east of where Moses was writing this at the time. It's just a fascinating throw, well, not a throwaway reference because no word of God is throwaway, but it helps us understand geographically um, where it might have been. The river references don't help us locate it. It says that there was a single source in the garden and out of that source flowed four rivers. Two of them we know about today, the Euphrates and um, the Tigris River, but we don't know anything about the other two, really. There's some biblical references to them. But I sense we'll never find Eden because Eden would have been destroyed in the universal flood when there was great upheavals and shifts and changes in the world. But nonetheless, it was a very real geographical place. And God put Adam in this garden. Listen to the bounty of this garden. Out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to sight and good for food. That's an astounding statement. Every tree, notice, not that is just good for food, but is good for sight. There was this this explosion of the senses that God had prepared for the man that he had formed from the dust of the ground. Not just a little here, not just a little bit there, nothing bland about the the garden that God had created. No need to preserve fruits either and can them for the next couple weeks or months. There was this bounty that hung off of all the trees that God had made. Every good fruit and every tree that was aesthetically pleasing in the middle of the garden or in this garden that God had made. The provision of God was luxurious. It was lavish. And I dare say probably it was not dull or boring. There was something new to eat every day. And in the middle of garden, it said he planted two trees. The tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I have wrestled with this. I'll tell you why I've wrestled with it. Here is the garden that God has made, the world that God has made, and it is good. He, in fact, describes it as very good. And what is the word evil doing in the garden? The tree of knowledge, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Anyhow, in the middle, anyhow, sorry. (laughs) You can wrestle with that as I have. Here we have two trees planted in the very middle of this garden. So not only was there bountiful and luxurious provision for the eyes and for the taste buds, but there is this provision of minerals and luxurious gems and smells. He said a river flowed out of the Garden of Eden, divided into 
four rivers. One of those rivers was um, a source of gold, not just sort of impure gold, but good, good gold. And there's bdellium. It's a kind of perfumed resin that just would have just exploded in your nose as you smelt it, just a wonderful perfume. And onyx stones. Onyx stones were one of the stones that was part of the high priest's garb. Luxurious, lavish provision of things to eat and things to smell and things to touch and things to shape. And so the Lord took the man and put him in the garden to work it and keep it. Surely, surely this is a rebuttal against the lie that would say God is stingy. God is anything but stingy. Never, ever conclude that God is stingy. This is an incredible world that God had created. This was an incredible garden that God had made for Adam, created for him, placed him in it to work it and keep it. Again, far from being an accident or an afterthought or the product of chance evolution, this world was made to be inhabited and cultivated by the ones made in the image of God. Loved ones, we thrive when we understand our relationship with God and his provision for us. The third thing, and I'm wrestling with this, and I was wrestling with it late into night, and I, I thought after the first service, I probably should just say, well, let's sing five hymns and go home rather than try and work our way through the word of God. I don't find it easy all the time. Well, I don't find it easy any of the time. But we've been created to find life and thrive in submission to God. We really need to hear that again and again and again. We have been created to thrive in submission to God. First, you see something of the permissive word of God here where he says, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, including the tree of life, freely, as often as you want, whenever you want. Whatever fruit catches your eye, whatever smell draws you, whatever color gets your attention, come, eat, enjoy, thrive. Find life abundantly, extravagantly. And then there's the prohibition. Very first time that the word commandment is used in the Bible. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. There's one tree, only one. But you may not eat of it, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Is there a hint here that, man, or that God knew that man would eat of the tree? He doesn't say, for if you eat of it, you will surely die. But when you eat of it, you will surely die. We'll talk about that more when we talk about redemption. But why would God plant such a tree in the garden in the first place? Why would God put in the garden a tree of the knowledge of good and evil in paradise? in a world in which God had concluded was very good. Obviously, the tree must have been very good. 
but it had boundaries around it. It had, it had a commandment that God had given. And maybe it was a temporary tree. Maybe it was a, a time of testing for Adam, particularly this tree of a knowledge of good and evil. The command of God is certainly not unfair. He's God after all. He made the, the universe. He made the world. He made the garden. So he could say, you can eat of this and you can't eat of that. It wasn't unreasonable. Remember, God had said, you can eat of everything else. But this one tree, don't eat of it. Neither was God secretive or hidden about the consequences. He, he didn't kind of say, you can eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It was absolutely clear. But in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. The choice that was given to Adam and Eve was a unique choice. It's not the same for us today because we have a sinful nature. We have a fallen nature. But to Adam originally, who had no sinful, fallen nature, made in the image of God, God made him a moral being with moral choice. God said to him, you have a choice. But I'm telling you, do not eat of this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Have you ever thought that there is a danger to both good and evil? They need contexts. How do we know what is good? How do we know what is evil? The Bible tells us that there will come days in which evil is good and good is evil. How do we understand the difference between them? How do we know what actually is good and what actually is evil? We will have people that say, well, uh, sexual relationships are wonderful, so we can have them whenever we want. But God says, no, sexual relationships are reserved for marriage. There's a reason, there's a context for sexual relations. We would conclude without God that you can have sex everywhere, every time. We would say, that's good. But God says, no, no, sexual relationships are intended for the marriage relationship. See, only God, who is perfect, has a knowledge of good and evil. Don't ever just talk about the tree as the tree of knowledge or the tree of the knowledge of evil. It is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, together, combined. And we say, well, what's going on here? As I've said, only God has a knowledge of good and evil. Only God has the ability to discern between the two, to know what is good and to know what is evil because God is perfect. The Bible tells us children don't have it. In Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 39, as the people are told that they will die because they distrusted God, God says through Moses, as for your little ones who you said would become a prey and your children who today have no knowledge of good or evil, they shall go into the land. The aged can lose the ability to discern between good and evil. I don't know if you ever thought of that. Barzilli, speaking to David, one of David's good friends, says, I am now 80 years old. Can I tell the difference between good and evil? It's something for us as we age to think about. Can your servant taste what he eats and what he drinks? One of the men that has helped me is Daryl Johnson. I find him helpful in many different places in Scripture, but he writes, he has written a book on Genesis 1 to 11, and here he quotes from 
uh, early theologian that influenced him, Daniel, Daniel P. Fuller. And he notes that after working through every use of the idiom good and evil in the Bible, Fuller wrote, it would appear that to the original readers of Genesis 2, the expression to know good and evil signified the possession of that maturity which frees one from being dependent on someone else for guidance and how to act wisely. Do you understand what he's saying there? This is what little children do not have. They don't have the maturity to, depend, to be de dependent from their parents on knowing the difference between good and evil. And it's something that we can lose with age, maybe, as we lose, lose our ability to think clearly and to think straightly. In other words, to know good and evil signified, signified that capacity to live independently without anybody else's help in making one's way through life. So to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is to say, I don't need God. I can figure this out on myself. I'm big enough. I'm smart enough. I'm good enough to be able to say, yeah, this is good and this is evil. No, only God has that knowledge. Only God is perfect. Only God knows what is perfectly good and only God knows what is evil. You see, this is why I think we're told in the Bible, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom or the beginning of understanding. The way that we find our way in life, the way that we discern the good and the evil is by putting God first and to working everything, every choice, every action through the belief and the conviction that there is a God and that God has told us how to live. It's also, I think, what we find in, in chapter 3 of Proverbs. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. Wisdom comes through fear of the Lord. And loved ones, we are made to be dependent on God for the knowledge of good and evil. I, I was helped listening to the paraphrase of Daryl Johnson or reading it of the command that God gave to Adam in the garden. Adam, you are what you are because of me, your creator. You are a glorious creation, magnificent beyond what you yourself knows. I have made you to be dependent on me for life. All I ask of you is that you, or is that you be you, a creature, a human being. You are free. But do not use your freedom to try and be other than you are, a dependent creature. Do not try and be your own God. For all your magnificence, you cannot be your own God. You be you, and I will be me. Do not try to be what I am. I tell you this for your own sake. If you try to be me, if you try to be an independent being, you will ruin your world and you will die. Do we not see that all around us, loved ones? People that try and be their own independent self, try and make their own decisions and come to their own conclusions about what is good and what is evil, and they ruin themselves. See, the issue at stake here is the issue of moral independence or moral autonomy. God is warning us that we should that should we sign a declaration of independence from God, we will be signing our own death certificate. 
He only gives us one command, and it is this. Do not try to live apart from me. Do not try and live without me. That this might be the best advice we have ever heard. And we certainly need to hear it again today. To obtain knowledge that God hasn't revealed to us is to act with moral autonomy. God sets the boundaries. God gives the commands. We don't always know why, but we have to trust him. We have to obey him. We have to submit to him. Jesus modeled this, did he not? Remember when Jesus was tempted by Satan in the wilderness? What was one of the things that he said? Man shall not live by bread alone, but by whatever words I want to, (laughs) but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Jesus knew that he had to walk in submission to God. Jesus knew that he had to trust God. Jesus knew that he had to learn obedience through the words of God. And when Satan whispered into his ear, "Ah, you're good, you're pretty smart, you can go on your own, Jesus said, no, no. I live only by every word of God that proceeds from his mouth. Loved ones, what we do with the word of God is everything. It's not a take it and leave it kind of thing. It's not a weigh it in the balance and say, well, yeah, I get this one, I don't get this one. No, that, you know, I think I know better than this one. You know, I don't think God really understands what it's like to be me in the day in which I live. No, God knows. He made you. He formed you. He created you. He has complete understanding of the knowledge of good and evil. Can I ask you a question? Will trusting God ruin your life? Have any of you found that to be true? That trusting God's ways are not worth the time of day? That trusting God's ways make your life miserable? I think if we're honest, we would tell ourselves that what has ruined my life is not submitting to the word of God. In other words, we are meant to thrive in dependence upon God. We are meant to thrive in submission to God. Don't strain to get out from under his commands. Rather, strain to bring yourself under his commands. And you will find that as you walk with God, you will thrive in submission to him. The choice remains, though, doesn't it? Walk independently. Become the master of your own universe. Think that God doesn't know what you need and God hasn't given you what you need. Think that you know best what is good for your life. Or find true thriving, true flourishing by living in dependence upon God. Father, we thank you for your word and uh, thank you for this 
revelation to us of how you made us to live. We so need to hear it, Father. We so need to know the truth about you. We so need to have the truth about you to counter the lies about you that we conjure up ourselves or the world tells us. Oh, Father, you have made us. You have formed us. You have created us. You have provided for us. You are imminent with us. You walk with us. You talk with us. You enter into relationship with us. You have designed us to live in dependence upon you. Help us to find our thriving and our flourishing in that dependence, I ask in Christ's name. Amen.